Hey guys, Garrett here. As promised, I am offering here the full and extended conversation that I had with Stephanie Matthews, who was featured on Opus 53 of the Triloquy podcast. Be sure to check out all of the really phenomenal work she's doing and uh, be sure to continue to support black business, black art and black freedom. Here's my conversation with Miss Stephanie Matthews. So um, maybe two and a half, two months ago, uh, my boyfriend and I were, were kind of just talking about the pandemic. And um, I kind of thought of the idea of, of protest just randomly. And, and we got into the conversation of, you know, the coronavirus being seen as uh, the principal threat to so many communities. But, you know, what if that was not the case? And I think, you know, as as we've seen, you know, that hasn't been the case for so many. Coronavirus didn't kill Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, no. you know, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Um uh, what's your take on, on that concept? You know, because a lot of people are, you know, still concerned about the coronavirus as we should be. But the reality is change needs to happen at the same time. And that change requires a, a bit of protest and, and physical contact in, in many cases. Well, I think I mean, I am I'm a large supporter of peaceful protest. Um, I want to go on record in saying that because I mean, it is also my belief that uh, the desired end result can come about a number of ways. There's not a singular, you know, pay, clearly paved pathway to achieve what we've been fighting for, for pretty much our, you know, our entire existence in this country. So um, while I am a proponent of and supporter of peaceful protest, I mean, I admire these young people who have the energy, who have the fire, who have the fight to be out here um, shaking things up. I mean, when we talk about the first captive Africans, you know, arriving in the Americas as early as like 1526, I'm, I'm definitely challenging the 1619 narrative of arrival. Um, I mean, look at where we are today. We are literally having the same conversations, fighting the same fights that our great, great, great grandparents were dealing with. So the fact that not much has changed, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked that, that so many Americans have been so blinded by their own implicit bias and the systemic racism that is so deeply rooted in the DNA of this country to have only been awakened. <laughs> this right. notion of like this new awakening is baffling to me. It really is baffling to watch. But the reality is there are people who really truly haven't seen it the way that we've seen it. And it, it's baffling to me as well. I, I don't know how much attention you pay to Facebook, but I had to go off a little bit earlier this week because it, it all just came to a head. I, I just sat, you know, one morning and just realized the fact that what has been obvious to so many of us for our entire professional lives, if, if not our entire lives, period, you know, people are kind of just waking up to all of a sudden. I mean, it, it makes you question some of the conversations you've had with these people and, and some of the some of the work you've done with them. And, and and, and everything in between? I, in some cases, yes, but in most 
people's cases, no. I think that privilege is such an intrinsic gift <laughs> that white Americans have um, been born with in this country as white Americans. And um, obviously the notion that you could discriminate against another human being because of the amount of melanin in their, in their skin is just an absurd notion to begin with. But I mean, that's what we're dealing with. Okay. <laughs> we're dealing with, um, something that is superficial. Um, even the construct of, you know, this, this kind of like race based identification is kind of a newer construct that was meant specifically to benefit the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. right i mean we can't until until we can really just say we're american full stop oh i'm i'm french i'm indian i'm chinese i'm japanese like we don't in the americas that's not a that's not an end all be all right so i mean it's when you look at even like apartheid when when there's this like separation by the color of your skin the texture of your hair i mean it's just i mean it's just absurd it yeah. really is um but that's where we are here that's what this country has been founded on um and so i think that there are a lot of well-intentioned um, even well-educated people whose privilege has blinded them from the suffering of someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting that that concept of just being, you know, American is something that I couldn't really wrap my mind around until the first time I, um, I traveled abroad. You know, I, I went to another country right. and, and just being seen and referred to as American, you know, and, and, and that's it was right. was a little different for me. The same, you know, the same for the music. And and with that in mind, I kind of want to um, transition into Black Music Appreciation Month, yeah. you know, and, and many places around the world, you know, the, the music that, you know, we, we call Black music here in the United States, there is just called American music. Do you think that same concept, that same conversation rolls over or should roll over? I mean, Okay, um, the sad reality is that without designating a time to celebrate the work of Black people in America, um, to celebrate their efforts and legacy, um, it would be and has historically been eclipsed by the achievements of the narrators mm. who have historically and typically been white people. Um, and honestly, it should be no surprise, obviously, that the shortest month of the calendar year is dedicated sure. to -da, Black History Month. Um, but I do believe that we should celebrate the achievements of all of the people who make this country so magnificently diverse. Um, but since our beloved America is not at the stage where right. we can automatically expect equity, then yes, I side with President Carter and President Obama, who also felt it imperative to set aside a time to acknowledge, you know, the contributions of Black musicians and artists and to celebrate Black music. 
I mean, so Barack Obama basically proclaimed that black music and black musicians have helped the country to quote, dance, to express our faith through song, to march against injustice and to defend our country's enduring promise of freedom and opportunity for all, end quote. I mean, we're clearly not there yet as a country. Right, right. But black music continues to challenge us to pursue freedom and opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and- a short answer, absolutely. I think it is appropriate um, to celebrate. And and, um, and and I think in a similar way that, you know, in, the, in a similar way that black music, the concept of black music challenges certain things, I, I think, you know, your career has been a testament of of ch- of challenging what people may even think of as black music. I mean, when when you opened, you know, that violin case for the very first time years mm-hmm. ago, could could you have ever imagined? Did, did you see yourself on stage with you know Mary J. Blige, Travis Scott, you know all, all the people you've worked with, Lizzo? Um, I mean, no, definitely not. My my roots ha- are in classical music. I mean, like my mom prefers gospel music to any other type of music on any given day. Mm-hmm. And my dad prefers to listen to classical music on any given day. Um, I could easily say that those two styles of music largely contributed to my desire to pursue music professionally. Um, so I honestly didn't listen to a lot of what would be considered secular music until I was a little older. Oh, wow. Um, my mom is very conservatively Christian. Um, my dad maybe a little less so, but still quite conservative. So, uh, you know, I did start listening to instrumental jazz as I got older. Vocal jazz and lyrics were a little too secular for my mom's liking mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, like when I was you know, um, when I had my own room and I was feeling myself and, you know, middle school, high school, had my little, you know, radio, I had my, you know, my two fingers locked and loaded to hit the play record (laughs) combo. So I could make my, you know, make my little mixtapes and, you know, so, um, I, I, I don't know that it ever really crossed my mind as a young violinist that I would be on stage playing with pop artists mm-hmm. um while you know these are you know they were always like these larger than life figures and i admired them very much it it never really crossed my mind maybe because i just didn't know how how that would work how it would look if, yeah if that makes sense yeah I just can't help but to, you know, think about a reality in which, you know, those um, Suzuki string players or, or those beginning band kids could open up that case for the first time and see something like that, see more realities than being an orchestra or, or, or be a music teacher, because that's all it's, it's been. I mean, that's all it seemed like for me when, when I started, you know, I'm going right. to be a band teacher or or maybe I'll, you know, be in an orchestra. But I mean, the, the, the possibilities um you know, are, are so much more than that. But it, it seems like we, we just kind of, we're still fighting that siphoning of of so-called um, classical music, you know, instrumental education into into one thing that's, you know, again, dominated by whiteness and, 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 and systemic issues. 
Agreed. But I think, I mean, that, that comes down to visibility, right? Visibility is power. So, I mean, how is a child going to aspire to, to do something, to achieve something that they've never seen before? Um, and maybe they, they'll have a dream, you know what I mean? And it'll, it'll come to them through, you know, seeing something on TV or something like a little more indirect. But the reality is, you know, when we talk, I mean, I've taught in, in public schools and when, you know, when I, when I speak to, or when in the past, when I had, you know, had conversations with, you know, little black boys and little black girls, obviously I taught <laughs> all, all ethnic groups, all nationalities, sure, but sure. I'm speaking to them specifically as, as it pertains to black musicians, black art, right? Um, you know, they, they aspire to do things that they see that they had seen before, you know, whether it be, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. My dad was a police officer. I want to be a police officer. I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a football player. Um, you know, I want to be a singer. Mm-hmm. I think that these are things that they saw. Um, they saw themselves reflected in professionals that held those positions and could say, oh, I could do that too. I mean, and the beauty of now is we have so many more talented black artists who are coming to the forefront Um in various fields but you know in classical music now we're we're seeing far more um black men and women um and lgbtq thankfully more than time um who are kind of having the the visibility that for so long had been you know kind of overshadowed by the status quo. So I think we have far more work to do in that regard, but I mean imagine if imagine if your teacher was you, Garrett. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like imagine being in school. Like I think about that sometimes. Like if I was in a classroom, you know, and my teacher was a Stephanie Matthews mm-hmm. who you know, was a classically trained musician, went to some of the top schools that, you know, that I aspired to attend and to go to and could speak to things like arranging, could speak to things like contracting, could speak to things like having a thriving career in, you know, mainstream music, touring, what that looks like, Um, being in chamber you know, chamber ensembles and being able to kind of like straddle both lines um, or to straddle the line, it, it, it would have changed my, I think it definitely would have changed my perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. For sure. When was the, uh, what would you say was the turning point um, in your career? When did you start to um, get into an area that you didn't initially see? Um. Honestly, it was around college. So I was at Indiana University and I just remember starting to feel very burnt out. Hmm. Um, I started my undergraduate career in biochemistry um, and then made the switch like 
after about two years. So oh, wow. I com- you were invested. I, I completed three semesters um, in a scholarship program. I was on scholarship and, um, you know, decided to to switch switch over to pursuing music full time at that point. That doesn't mean that, you know, I just became, you know, became invested <laughs> at sure. that point. But, sure. you know, because I was competitive prior to that and, you know, participated in a lot of like local and regional competitions, etc. But the notion of being a struggling musician scared me. I'm, I'm being completely honest with you. I did not want that to be my lot. I was like, you know, I want to be able to support myself. I personally did not know um any i i i didn't really know any black classical violinists Mm -hmm. that i could look to that had the career that seemingly i was being prepared for back to that point of visibility 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 is so powerful okay Misty Copeland is not the only black ballerina. She's certainly not the first and she right. won't be the last. Right. But the fact that she is a household name is a powerful thing. Right? Because oh, yeah. like everybody's not going to be be able to travel the world and and catch these glimpses of these incredible, you know, forces of nature, you know, and and may never set foot and you know to to see a ballet like i know plenty people who have never gone to see a ballet which i think is shameful but again <laughs> um misty has has a platform and it it gives little black girls dreams of be of of being able to see themselves yeah as a professional ballerina and how ubiquitous she's become. Earlier Absolutely. this afternoon, I was, um, you know, just I, I, on Saturdays, I like to just go through my music videos. It, it brings me back to my childhood, just letting them go. And uh, and, and Miss Lee Cop- Misty Copeland is in the uh, in the Drake uh, Nice for What video, you yeah. know. So e- yeah. even all the way on that in that corner and of the arts. And she worked with Prince as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 funny when I when I look at someone like Misty Copeland, which is. So it really interestingly enough, um, I was fortunate enough to to perform in a quartet for her wedding. Oh out, wow! Out here, yeah, and um, but like I, I look at someone like Misty Copeland, and you know, obviously she is in a very very um, historically white dominated space, and she is forced to to navigate that with varying attacks on her femininity attacks on her body um bogus (laughs) bogus narratives about you know which body type uh, you know or which race of people you know would make the best Mm -hmm. you know ballerinas i mean you know all kinds of ridiculous things but i think she's very poised and and very graceful in how she addresses a lot of these um a lot of these negative comments and attacks and honestly i think a lot of us (laughs) if we've gone through some of the more traditional channels 
of education have experienced that to some degree. I mean, not even talking about entering the professional space, right. Lord forbid. But right, yeah, even in the um, educational space. Oh, I, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole in and of itself. But, oh yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I really. I admire her, and when I look at her quote unquote crossover appeal and how mm-hmm. <clears throat> she's obviously very firmly rooted in, you know, uh, classical and traditional ballet. She is an American dancer and her style, the stylistic elements that she brings to the stage is is uniquely American. And she's been able to cross over into, you know, more mainstream formats and collaborating with, you know, these big celebrity artists. And I feel like in some ways my career has mirrored that on the music side Mm -hmm. a little bit in that I have roots in classical music, undoubtedly. The sensibility is there. My first love (laughs) came from, you know, my love of the violin and my desire to want to pursue, you know, a career in music as a violinist stemmed from my love for classical music. So, um, being able to translate that into a more mainstream context and have these kinds of opportunities is is unique, I think. Um, like we were talking about, uh, I'm sorry, this is like a very kind of like round robin way of uh, oh, no, addressing this, but when when you you had asked me about um, <laughs> my initial. I guess, plunge into more mainstream territory was post Sphinx competition. I was in Detroit um, with my friend Shelby Latin, now Shelby Harris. Um, Her mom drove us up to Detroit. We were both at IU at the time and um, the gala had finished. We were getting ready to head back on the road. And we were driving past Fox Theater in Detroit, and we saw that Erica Badu was headlining, and Flo Tree was also on the on the ticket. And we begged her mom to allow <laughs> us to go, and she, you know, so I guess she figured she'd pull over, take a quick nap in the car, let us, you know, do our thing, and then keep it moving. And we had the brilliant idea, <laughs> you know the story, but you know, for the sake of the listeners, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we had the brilliant idea since we were dressed in our formal black. Like, oh, let's see if we could sneak backstage. We had our <laughs> I would instruments. Have, I would have never gone there, but y'all went directly to that thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I, I really couldn't tell you why. Because I don't think I've, yeah, I don't think I've snuck into a concert since then (laughs) like at all i mean obviously like as a musician i know other musicians so it's you know right it's right you don't have to sneak in but yeah apparently we thought that was a good idea at the time (laughs) and um we were able to see the schedule which showed that they were going to be in indianapolis the very next night Mm -hmm. so we ended up you know we had we ended up buying tickets anyway they kicked us out from backstage clearly they were like uh definitely not and um, so we did watch the show from the audience. Uh, and then the the next show, I think it might have been like two days later at the Murat Theater, um, 
we made up in our mind we were gonna go. I I don't remember. It, I think I I think we had planned to leave like right after orchestra. Orchestra was like the last class of the day. Mm-hmm. So um, I made a few copies of my audition, my audition CD for grad school because that's all I had. I was like, we gotta have samples of work. So I yeah. I brought six of them. Um. And so I basically gave three to Shelby and was like, just give them these. They won't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> they won't right. Know the, you know, the difference. So, um, yeah, so she had three. I had three. We were ready to lock and load. Drove up on my last $10. I mean, Garrett, my last $10. Do you understand what I said? Wow. Wow. The $10 went in my tank. And that was and that barely was enough to get us <laughs> to Indianapolis and back to Bloomington round trip. So when I get there and see that parking was like, who knows, five, ten dollars. I don't remember how much it was. I couldn't afford it. Neither of us could afford it. So I parked way at the back, kind of like where the tour buses were, locked my wheel hard to the right because I was like, if they tow me, then they'll have to wait till all the cars are gone. So sure, my car doesn't sure. get the next car. And I was just like praying, like, please do not let me get towed because I won't have money to get it out. Um, but anyways, because we were back by the, t- the tour buses, we saw Erica and, and Flo Tree's bus along with their band. So like, we were just kind of sitting out on the curb. We had no money to pay for tickets. We were just hoping we would get a chance to meet them. She walks out. Erica at the time was pregnant with Puma. She's like, what are you guys doing sitting outside? The show's inside. Wow. We're like, well, we're college kids. We can't afford it. We love you. But we can't, you know, we'd love to see the show, but we just, we don't have money. We were just hoping we'd get a chance to meet you. She got her tour manager to give us VIP t- wristbands. Whoa. So we're like in the front, in the VIP section. And then like right before the end of the show, we rushed back, you know, towards the buses because I was like, I want to keep an eye on my car (laughs) make sure I don't get towed. And also hopefully, you know, get a chance to say thank you. Um, And that's when we bumped into PJ Morton. And by this time, I had already given um, some samples, like the recordings to... I gave um, one to Natalie, the girl from Flowetry. I had met Marsha in Detroit. I distinctly remember meeting Marsha in Detroit, but I, I met Natalie when we were in uh, Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And then the rest I gave to Erica. And she was like, yeah, you know, well, you know, we don't have, you know, we I'd love to have strings in my band, but she was like, you know, we kind of already have our band set up, but mm-hmm. you know, I'd love to take a listen to your, you know, to your stuff. Um, then PJ, who was playing auxiliary keys, and I think he was singing background vocals at the time with Erica, was like, weren't y'all the girls <laughs> that were in Detroit? He was like, Are y'all roadies or something? I'm like, no, we're not roadies, but you know, I was like. Where are you? So we saw you were going to be in Indianapolis. We wanted to catch the show. Um, so we, you know, we're talking, making small talk, talked about how, you know, we were both violinists. He was like, oh, well, do you write? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, Did I, was you very though? Good with, I, I was very good with counterpoint. I mean, <laughs> I, I know that I had a strong ear. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and, you know, we had, we had all kinds of like composition projects that I did very well, like, did very well with okay. in school 
And so that was my initial reaction. Like, oh, yeah, right. Not thinking, like, do you arrange strings? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I didn't yeah. even know string arranging was a thing at that point. Music school educated me did not know that music arranging was a thing. Okay? Because yeah. it wasn't something that was talked about in that way. I mean, being a composer is one thing, right? But like, An arranger. Orcish, yeah, it was. it's a very unique thing. I, 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 hadn't, I didn't even know that it was something that people professionally do so when he said right i was like oh yeah you know i've, I've done composition projects <laughs> and he's like well i you know i'm working on my debut album i really want strings i didn't have any more cds to hand out so he gave me um a p.o box that he, i could send my my stuff to and he was like i love i love your stuff let's do it and and so he flew me Shel- my friend Shelby and Shelby's sister Coley, who played cello, flew us down to Atlanta, and that's when we recorded the Emotions album. And that kind, that shot, PJ. I think I could, I could single him out in saying that he definitely gave me like my first opportunity in like getting my foot in the door when it came to like navigating the more mainstream space because after his emotion the the work that we did on the emotions album got the attention of then up and coming music director Adam Blackstone and Adam had just gotten the placement with Kanye West for then his upcoming glow in the dark tour and he Mm. was looking for someone to go on the road as lead strings. Now, mind you, I'm in East Harlem, like in my raggedy little apartment, (laughs) teaching kids, you know, for like $15 an hour. And I get a call and he's like, yeah, yeah, I met you in, um, I think it it might've been Nashville. I'd done a couple of spot dates with PJ at that point. And he was like, yeah, I loved what what you did on the emotions record. And I want to get, you know, I want to have someone come out who can write, you know, quickly and someone who could be lead strings because we're going to, you know, we'll probably have a string section. So I'm just like, OK, he says Kanye West. I'm like, the name sounds familiar, but <laughs> I didn't even know who Kanye West was. That's incredible. That. Wow. <laughs> my, and so when I told my sister, I was like, yeah, it's like an artist. I think he says like Kanye something. She said, Kanye West. She said, girl, you better go. Literally. And so I had to look him up because I didn't really listen to. I, I mean, the hip hop that I knew and that I listened to was like Nas. I knew. I knew a little bit of Common. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there is like maybe like KRS One, like sure. just the, like the, little the classic, the, the yeah. classics, yeah. But I wasn't like a hip hop head, you know what I mean? So yeah. I j- I just really didn't know. And I remember that was kind of around the time Kanye was doing these college tours, and he had done a show at my sister's school. And she was like, you should go. You need to go. You need to go. So I looked him up and I'm like, man, this could be cool. But really, they would want like a classical violinist violinist to go on the road with them. Um, And so, you know, he was like, I'll have the tour manager reach out to you. At this point, I was just like, it just it seemed like such a far fetched notion. 
And when I got the call and they gave me the dates, which they were going to fly me out 48 hours later to L.A. for production rehearsals, I had to call all my schools and all my principals and let them know that I was going to be gone for the rest of the school year. That must have been tough. Or maybe it, it wasn't. Was just, it was strange because half of them didn't believe me. They just <laughs> thought I wanted to quit. Sure. You know what I mean? So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was definitely... Um, I was in shock, no doubt about it. I was definitely in shock, but um, that that was the pivot point for sure. It started with PJ and then um, kind of like developing that relationship with Adam Blackstone has definitely like set me on, I think the current career path that I'm on now. And you know that the the way that your career has just evolved has has always reminded me of the path to freedom. You you know I've described your career as freedom. You know you're you're not punching uh, into anyone's clock. You didn't have to worry about furlough or unemployment in light of the coronavirus. You know there there were just certain freedoms that that you had and, and as certain we, freedoms yes yeah and, yeah and 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 that's what I wanted to ask you know as as we as we're coming up here on uh, uh, Juneteenth. You know, and, yeah. and we're thinking about that word freedom. Is is that a word that you would use to describe yourself or your career? Do you feel free? Um, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. Ultimately, no. But do I feel a sense of freedom in my career? Yes, and I would say yes because, um, you know, I, I think. I had hit a level of frustration within the traditional classical schematic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started, you know, while I was a student in school and just um, the reception that, that I had from certain teachers, not all of my teachers, but I mean, I had some pretty incredible teachers, thank God. But um, I also had some pretty awful teachers. Sure. And um, so it just it just felt like I had to keep asking myself, like, what am I fighting so hard for? I, it just felt like um, it it honestly felt like there were people in place to strategically deter me from pursuing a career in classical music. It literally felt like it was like their job to ensure that it's almost like, and I know, I know people voice this kind of after the fact, but it's, there were, it really felt like there were people there to break my spirit. Yeah. Like intentionally. And, um, I consider myself to be pretty thick skinned. I'm not um, not saying that like I'm completely unbothered because I think everyone has, you know, their threshold of, of what they can endure. But uh, it, it, it felt particularly challenging. I mean, not saying that I wasn't up for the challenge, but, you know, I had to continue asking myself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? To graduate, you know, with loads of student loan debt, by the way. Oh, don't um, get me started. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, to see my colleagues, people who I had been, you know, we had competed yeah. <laughs> together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
in some cases, not all, but in some cases where, you know, I would, you know, I would win or I would place higher than they would. And then when we get to like a more professional, when we enter the professional space, it's like some of us are just, you know, stuck like at, at the, at the door, you know? Um, and it, that, that was really frustrating. You know, um, I did start a string quartet we had some success, but even with that, I just felt like there were times where we would be overlooked for another group. And it just, I don't know. I don't know why it felt so labored to even have people who wanted to help, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where there would be, you know, faculty, teachers, and people who would like jump at the bit to help uh, to help another group get from point A to point B. And I'm not talking about we were just sitting back on our haunches like, hey, you should be helping us. I'm talking like, I definitely remember um, like spending my own money, spending our money, scraping by like the little pennies, literally that right, we had right. to like get photos done and to like go get um, business cards printed on good business quality stock paper. So when people like reached out to us that, you know, people don't really use business cards in the same way anymore, but you know, we, we had something to hand people, um, with our names on them, you know, Stephanie Matthews had Stephanie Matthews cards for Ebony Strings Quartet and, you know, Adiza Sanchez Raheem and Patrice Jackson and Naira Underwood. And, um, I also remember being in school at the time I was at Juilliard, I was pursuing my master's and, um, they didn't have enough. They didn't, the whole, the whole goal was to have a student quartet. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I was just tired of, of begging and pleading, um, with other students to want to be in a chamber ensemble. I was in a piano trio with two, two other friends of mine who are non-black and, you know, we still do perform together, but I was like, I really, really love string quartet repertoire. So I really, really wanted to have a string quartet. And so there were literally like a handful of black students in the school at the time. I was the only black violinist in either you know, undergrad or grad division at the school at the time. Um, and so I had reached out to, well, I connected with Patrice Jackson, con- connect, a cellist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, shout out to Patrice. A, yeah. Shout out to Patrice <laughs> and connected with Adiza Sanchez Rahim, who was an undergrad at the time. Patrice had done work prior to, to um, getting to Juilliard at Yale. So, um, Patrice was the one who was like, you need to reach out to Naira Underwood. Like she's in New York. She's a great violinist. I know she came through Sphinx, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, let's reach out to her. And that's, you know, we had this like four black, (laughs) four young black women in a string quartet. And, you know, we were like going all over the place trying to rehearse. Like Naira lived in Brooklyn at the time. I was in Harlem at the time. So was Patrice. And I want to say Adiza might have been in the Bronx. So we were trying to figure out like where we would be able to rehearse and yep. also space because I had roommates. 
most of us had roommates, if I'm not mistaken. I think Naira at the time may have lived on her own, but you know, there were other student groups at the school who were using the facilities at the school. Now we were tackling a lot of the new music. So we were collaborating with the, you know, the young composers because they were literally begging people to play their work. And a lot of people just didn't want to dedicate time, rehearsal time to learning new work when they wanted to program more traditional repertoire, especially for the purpose of competing. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. we were like, well, let's do it. So we that was like our whole approach was new music from the very beginning. And we cultivated relationships with these composers, you know, and it was astonishing to be told that we were not able to rehearse at the school, literally. They said if all four, if, if all of the musicians in the quartet were not students at Juilliard, then we would not be able to use the facility. They didn't name our group specifically, but it was very targeted because we had upcoming performances for like choreo comp and like Juilliard programs. So I got a tip internally that I shall not name, Okay. who um, made me aware that there were not enough cellists at, enrolled at Juilliard to be part of the quartet survey, survey program, which I think is a first year program. And it's required of all incoming freshmen. So they had students coming from like Columbia to be a part of this program. So they technically weren't students at Juilliard either, but they were able to use the facility. And so this person suggested that I should hold them to that. So, and then, then they, they allowed us to, to use the facilities, but had, you know, had we not had an ally <laughs> internally, yeah, yeah. you know, we would, I mean, we would have been flailing. And it, I mean, I just, there were so many moments like that, not just in school, but that, that like extended outside of school also. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for, you know, platforms like Soulful Symphony. Um, I remember as a student, you know, having the opportunity to perform in Soulful Symphony and getting paid for it. Um, there were many opportunities that I was presented with that were unpaid, you know, for the exposure, <laughs> which is hilarious. Yeah, but, yeah that, that, know, whole, that whole concept of being paid in exposure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, and maybe that's, that's nice to consider if you have the means to do free work, but at the time, like when I was, when I, first of all, New York City is one of the most expensive cities oh, yeah. in the country. Oh yeah. And you know, I, I couldn't even afford to live on campus. Living on a campus was very expensive. So I had to basically like find living arrangements that were more affordable. And I worked three part-time jobs while I was in school. Which meant, by the way, <laughs> that I had to literally look at my, my academic schedule and figure out which classes I could afford to miss so mm. that I could work. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, then know to be days. offered exposure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> on, on top of that struggle. Is laughable. You know, so it's just like, and then I think just the culmination of all those things. And please stop me if I'm just like, you know, it kind of feels like verbal diarrhea at the Oh, no, right I'm loving now, it. But, I'm loving it. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, it just got to a point where I was just like, why am I, what am I doing this for? Like I have mounting student loan debt. 
I'm perpetually frustrated because it's like, I just feel like I keep hitting a wall, hitting a wall, hitting a wall. And so when this, and I think maybe that's why, you know, for me, it was like a breath of fresh air, having the opportunity to work with PJ, you know, it was like something so different from what I had been doing, you know, such a break from the routine. And I was just like, whoa, (laughs) what is this? And um, so then when I, when I did get in touch with Adam, like I finally connected with Adam Blackstone and going on that Kanye tour, I didn't even know what tours paid, no clue, none. And so after that experience, I just, I was just like, it, I mean, literally, I was like, I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> literally, I'm doing it wrong. You cashed that first check and something made sense. I mean, the direct <laughs> deposit hit and I'm like, what? Are you serious right now? Yeah. I mean, it like I was traveling on someone else's dime. Like, I honestly, like I hadn't seen the world like that before. And ever. you were doing all that with your violin. All of that with my violin. And... You know, and even with that, like, I, you know, coming back, like at the end of tour, like I was able to like get us a website, get a web designer, do a whole full on photo. Sh- you know what I mean? So it was like, this is allowing me to like fund projects that I'm really passionate about. And I mean, so I think that started as I got more and more opportunities to tour and to um, collaborate with various artists and build relationships with various labels and music directors. Um, I think it, it definitely changed the, the course of my career because it changed my perspective for me, because I mean, I love music, Garrett. I love classical music. There's no two ways about that, but I also really value the ability to pay my bills. I (laughs) appreciate, you know, being in a space where I am valued, like my artistic input is valued. My voice is valued. Um, The way that I play is valued. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that was new. I didn't feel that in the classical space in the same way. I just didn't. Um, so, 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 so wrapping that concept around to the idea of, you know, the work, uh, especially these days, you know, we have all of these organizations and their new DEI initiatives and all these awakenings they've, they've been coming to, um, what, what do you see, um, as the most authentic and organic way for more musicians that look like us to, you know, get this new perspective that you've had, you know, it's like someone grabbed your hand and, and pulled you into this new world. How, how can we make that more of a ubiquitous experience for, for, for black musicians who happen to play, you know, these classical instruments? Um, the decision makers have to be more diverse. I mean, simply put, Mm. show me your boardroom, show me your board of directors, um, Show me the people who are making the decisions on behalf of your organization, because if they're all white, um, we're probably (laughs) not going to, you know, things are not going to change in the way, 
in the time frame that they really should and need to change. Um, it's really that simple. I, I, I don't, we, I think human beings are kind of change averse in general, um, some more than others, but that has to change. It, 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 we, we've been talking about it and screaming from the rafters, like, please change, please change. And then COVID-19 hits and shuts everyone down, right. which has leveled the workspace in a way that is unprecedented. It has when, not, we've not seen it like this before. And what do you mean by that level the workspace? What I mean is freelancers are out of work and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra is out of work. Mm, so who's the, better yeah. than who? Yep, there we go. And you get what I'm are. saying? Yeah. And here yeah. we are. So who's more dynamic? Who's who's more marketable? Who's who's who, who more can, versatile? Who's more who's prepared? More marketable? Yeah. Who who's better equipped to remote record and work from home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you know, if your day to day exists like in going to a dedicated rehearsal space and going to a dedicated concert space and having a schedule carved out for you, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying this is where we are. So I think people have really had to assess differently. Think different things are valued. When we look at like essential workers, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. What what was all important prior to isn't so important anymore. Right, People right. aren't looking at social media influencers. No one wants to hear from you right now. <laughs> I you didn't want to saying? before, but yeah. <laughs> Correct. So it's just, it's shifted in a way that we have not seen before. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, Coming back to to your initial question, I think that the decision makers have to be more diverse because there have to be different voices and different perspectives in those rooms. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. I mean, to think that you are just (laughs) so, you know, so even for me to think that I'm just so progressive to be able to like step outside of myself and see things from someone else's lived experience is impossible. I can't, right? I live and breathe and exist as Stephanie Matthews, as a black woman, all of my personal and professional identifiers. But that's, I think, what would make um, the orchestras more dynamic. I think it would make programming more dynamic because honestly, people are tired. People are tired of the same stale programming. People are tired of the same stale looking billboards. I mean, frankly speaking, I'm tired and I love it. I love classical music, you know? And you know, this notion that, oh, well, people are just like not, people are just not paying what they used to. Your concert halls are empty because your programming sucks. Right, exactly. People are not in your concert hall because, you know, your orchestra is not relevant. To the, and, I, and most times to the communities that they exist within. Yeah, and, and I think that's an even more accurate way because you know m- music is 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 a subjective sort of thing, but you know that relevance, that 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 real impact is is what so many of these organizations Cultural are missing. Relevant. Yes. And you know what? We would not be having all of these, you know, extensive and boring, frankly, DEI conversations and diversity and inclusion initiatives if their bottom line wasn't being affected. If if they were still bringing in the money that, you know, that they were enjoying, 
this wouldn't be a conversation because there would be no need for them to change anything right. that they've been doing. Right. Wow. Well, um, you know, as as we wrap up here, you know, um, you know, someone listening right now um, has a little black girl that they want to get involved in violin. Maybe there's a, a teacher out there that's that's teaching these these uh, young kids from the more marginalized communities and, and, and trying to, you know, get get exposed them, you know, to this art form, so-called classical or otherwise. What are your mm -hmm. words for them? What, what advice do you have for folks helping these very young musicians start their journey? I think it's important to be very, very careful about languaging when it comes to dealing with young people because they are the future, right? They represent where we're headed. And if we can empower them and support and uplift and encourage them, I mean, ho hopefully we will be in a much better, much stronger position than we are today. You know, um, talent knows no demographic. I mean, success is not limited by, you know, the socioeconomic constructs that we think of. Mm -hmm. Opportunity is key, right? And if we can, if we can empower a young mind to really truly believe that they can do whatever they set their mind to with the diligence and, you know, the passion and instilling the work ethic, I, I mean, we would just have a, a much richer tapestry. And I think we'd be much prouder of ourselves as a country. And maybe they wouldn't have to, you know, struggle the way that you and I had to in school on our last $10, as you said earlier. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that struggle is bad. Be it's like, what is the struggle? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so. And what's learned from it. Yes. Like, because you, you absolutely, you're not going to learn from your comfort zone. Okay. So I think it is important for, for us to be stretched in a way that allows us to grow, allows us to develop, allows us to learn, but, you know, to continue to <laughs> banish, you know, certain groups of people to obscurity is just, it, it's irresponsible. I mean, and we can't, I mean, I don't think we, we can't stand for it any longer. Um, we all have something to contribute. And it's, you know, I think of this, like the Crayola box, right? Mm -hmm. No one's going to the store to buy, you know, the, the, the four, the four pack that you get for free at the restaurants, right. Right? right? You want the big, you want the big jumbo box. Why? Because you have more colors at your disposal to create something really beautiful and dynamic. It's like a toolkit, right? The more tools in the toolkit, the more, the better able you are to build, the better able you are to, to construct something. So, um, I think with that in mind, I'm just, I, I would love to, to instill into that little girl or that little boy that, dreams do come true um i think it is really really important to identify people who really support you and love you 
and want to push you to be better. Um, because there's just, there's a world of opportunity, a and world of opportunity. And we need you. We need the next generation to step up. And back to that point of, you know, not being able to learn and grow in your comfort zone, you know, that that certainly applies to music. Many of my lessons were not comfortable, you know, <laughs> but but I grew oh, from the 100%. but 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 then also, you know, in, in the conversations of racial equity that we're having right now, you know, white people stepping outside of that comfort zone, men stepping outside of their comfort zone when it comes to the intersection of race and and sex, you know, and, yeah. and the uh, unique challenges of of black women. I, I think that's a, a really um, good point uh, to end on there, stepping outside of that comfort zone so you can learn and grow. Um, for, for folks who want to um, learn more about you, about the work you do, maybe even book you, how can they uh, how can they get in contact? Well, my you can reach me on my website um, at www.stringcandy.com. Um, I'm also on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Steph on strings, which is uh, S-T-E-P-H-O-N-S-T-R-I-N-G-S. Um, I'm also on there as String Candy, uh, String Candy Music, which is at just String Candy Music on Instagram. You can follow me on Facebook, Stephanie Matthews or String Candy on Facebook. Um, I really do love engaging with with audience, with artists, with students. So please feel free to drop a line, a message. Um, and if you want to contact me directly, you can contact me uh, for booking directly through the website. You know, I think I'm going to, um, I think when we get off the line here, I'm going to uh, sit in front of my TV and watch your performance with Mary J. Blige so I can, so I can sing I'm Going Down as I watch you play the violin. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Stephanie, it's really been such a pleasure. Thank you for being on. Thank you for having me, Garrett. I really, really appreciate talking to you anytime. <laughs>